Welcome, this is our first edition of Blurredcast, and I'm here with Josh Luber, founder and CEO of StockX, the world's first stock market for things. Josh, can you um, explain StockX in a sentence or two? StockX is, um, uh, we call it a stock market of things. Um, which in and of itself, that phrase means absolutely nothing uh, to anybody. It's actually more confusing than it is anything else. But here's the thing. We are a consumer goods marketplace. So think eBay, right? All we do is bring together buyers and sellers to buy or sell a consumer good. And we start with sneakers and we also sell watches and handbags and streetwear. But the manner by how we bring together buyers and sellers is the exact same way that the world's stock markets work. And there's a lot of nuance to that, and there's a lot of data, and there's a lot sure. of underneath the, the hood, and we can talk about all of it. But at its core, it's about the concept of true market price, right? You go buy a share of Nike stock on the New York Stock Exchange, you feel confident that the price for that is fair because you know that it's a product of tens of thousands of people all negotiating at the same place at the same time to surface that market price for Nike stock. And that's what we're doing for consumer goods. We're creating concepts of true market price. And then after that, it's, it's literally about just buying and selling sneakers, sure. right? But all everything else under the hood, that's all different. And that's all genuinely, for lack of a less cliche way of saying it, truly, truly revolutionary. It does not exist anywhere except the actual stock market. And so that's what we're trying to do. I get that. So I, I saw um, one headline about StockX that called, it, it said, uh, this is a stock market for physical things that, and this was the interesting bit, could change how capitalism works. So that's, that to me is, you know, like you say, revolutionary. And I wanted to start with that idea of disruption. So, you know, we live in a world where the lines are blurring between industries. So a fundamental question is, is StockX a retail company, a technology company, a stock market, a portfolio investment vehicle? I guess it's probably all of those things. And that's where you spotted an opportunity. Yeah, it certainly is all those things, but those are actually um, fundamentally we're a technology company. We're not a an advertising business or, or a, you know marketing company. The core business is that of a of a marketplace, right? For people to buy and sell consumer goods. And immediately when we say stock market in any context, stock market thing, immediately people think about investments. Yeah, and. There's some of that, and we'll sort of come back to that. But for now, just like forget about that. Just, just recognize that all a stock market really does is it brings together someone who wants to sell a share of stock with someone who wants to buy a share of stock. It just so happens that the asset that they're buying and selling happens to be something that we use for investments. What we want to do is focus on the method of connecting buyers and sellers. And that's the, the stock market part. Now we get to the bigger idea and you can build on top of that and actually get to the fact, and we're now sort of fast forwarding to the end, where people can literally buy and sell sneakers without ever taking possession of them. The same way that you might buy or sell oil futures. You're, you're literally buying that asset. Like, you know, if you were buying and selling oil futures, those barrels of oil really do sit at a warehouse somewhere, yeah. right? Now, you're not, you don't need to have possession of them, right? No one sends them to you and then you send them to, to, to someone else. No, like you're trading digital ownership of that back and forth. And that's literally where this, this leads to. And so it's a very uh, complimentary headline there to say that StockX is, is changing the face of, of capitalism, but it's certainly changing the face of both e-commerce and then ultimately investing. Well, that's what I wanted to ask next. So, are we actually, or is your business actually hinting at a radically new uh, paradigm for portfolio investing almost? Because I could buy 
shares in Nike today, but if Nike goes bankrupt, my Air Jordans are still valuable, even if my Nike shares are now <laughs> worthless. And that sounds to me like a hugely disruptive concept. That's actually, that, that's great. I've actually never used that. Um, I'm going to use that. that for free. I'm totally using that one, right? <laughs> Uh, we like to say that you know we make it as easy to buy a pair of Nikes as it is to buy a share of Nike. So sneakers are inherently, um, as a commodity, as an asset, less volatile than uh, most traditional commodities that we think of, right? But so so it's not about investing per se, right? Like we actually have a function on StockX which is called portfolios, and you could look at your sneaker collection the same way that you would look at a stock portfolio and see its value today, track its value over time, you know, the gain, loss, and 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 all that. But the reality of uh, interacting with sneakers is such that there's not a whole lot of volatility within the same markets. Um, because there's still a lot of different channels that you can buy or sell sneakers. Most of the money to be made in the secondary market for sneakers is someone who buys it at retail, who's fortunate enough to be able to buy a pair of shoes at retail, let's say a, a pair of uh, Adidas Yeezys, right? And then can turn around and immediately sell them on the secondary market for a profit. That's where most of the arbitrage is, gotcha. right? If you're buying it on StockX, you're probably not also selling it on StockX, at least not in the short term. There's not enough short-term volatility, but maybe over time. You hold it for a couple of years, then maybe. So what's the response been from brands themselves? Because they can surely see that the old rules about how they retail their products are breaking down here, right? This is, this is awesome because it ties in with the bigger idea, right? So the background, right, is, is before StockX, I had a company that was called Campless. And Campless was a, a sneaker price guide. Right. We were scraping eBay and we were creating a, it was a data company. We had a price guide of what sneakers were actually worth. We had a blog that was kind of like Freakonomics for sneakers, doing this sort of analytics around the secondary market that no one had really been doing. And so at the time, and, and we started getting some traction around 2013, um, however, I got in touch with anyone at the sneaker brands. And at the time, really, Nike was the entire secondary market. At the time, Nike, including Jordan brand, which Nike owns, made up about 96% of the secondary market. So it was all Nike. This is before Yeezy, before Adidas started to really get into this part of the business. So however I got in touch with anyone at Nike, the first conversation was, Ooh, this is really cool data. We should totally try to find a way to work together. And then the second conversation was, ooh, you know what? Uh, this is the resale market. Like, maybe I better talk to my boss. And then the third conversation was total silence, no returning emails, no returning phone calls, just like, and it's fine. I totally understand why. This is 33 years dating back to 1985 and the first Air Jordans of Nike having a very willful blindness policy towards the secondary market. Everything they do creates it. Everything they, they, they know how to very strategically benefit from the creation of the secondary market. But any public PR questions Nike about the secondary market is, no, 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 that's not us. We're not a part of that. We're not, we have nothing to do with it. And there's a lot of re good reasons why. Anytime you've ever heard anything around violence and sneakers and riots or people killing each other for sneakers, 1991 Sports Illustrated cover, your sneakers are your life, a pair of Jordan 5s and a gun, all a function of this. But slowly, 33 years, we've slowly gotten to the point where the secondary market has become legitimized. Brands have done a lot to... to um, uh, to make it safer for people to buy it. And you know, then you have companies like StockX that come in and authenticate the sneakers, right? Create an, a standardized e-commerce experience, have a real business model behind it. It's no longer just a, a back alley type of industry. And 
each one of the, these times that we've slowly started to legitimize the market, the brands have slowly, slowly coming around to work with us, which is a really long way of answering that they're still not there. And look, brands are a collection of people. There are some people at the big brands that are still super, super old school and still are, no, 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 we shouldn't even be talking to you. Yeah. And then there's people at the far other end of that gamut that are like, absolutely, we need to be working together. We need to be doing stuff together. And then there's everyone in between. Yeah. Right, And so for us, literally the purpose of StockX from day one was to bring the primary and secondary markets together. What a stock market is, the stock market is the single market that blurs the line between what is primary and what is secondary. The concept of true market price belies retail price or MSRP, right? An IPO happens of Facebook stock in the New York Stock Exchange, and then that same market continues to trade it. So talk about, yeah, because you, 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 you talk a lot about letting brands, so the, the companies we're talking about, Nike added as literally IPO mm-hmm. products, IPO a pair of new sneakers. Can you talk about that? Because that sounds, again, like an incredible blurring of the lines between. Well, that's concepts. right. And that, that's, that's literally the, the, the perfect um, segue there, because that's exactly what happens, right? Is you know, for us today, we're a better secondary market. Um, but as we can work with brands to become an alternate retail channel, and the way we do that is by literally IPOing products. The best example of, in a consumer good context, of primary and secondary markets working together is ticketing and sports ticketing. So if you think 10, 15 years ago, teams and leagues were arresting ticket scalpers or trying to shut down ticketing websites. Same happens in music, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all all that. And but today, StubHub is the official resale marketplace of Major League Baseball. Right. Right. But not only that. StubHub has primary ticket deals with the Sixers and the Yankees and a few other teams, right? So this is the IPO, right? They don't call it an IPO, but it, they are releasing the retail product. StubHub is selling the retail product, and that way if you want to resell any, you're already on StubHub, right? It's a single market that brings together primary and secondary. And so for us, the bigger idea is to do these IPOs, and we've done some of them. So in January of last year, Nike re-released LeBron James' first shoe. This was LeBron James' first retro. And I know that, that it's funny, like there's like probably no place in the world that cares less about LeBron James than like right here. But that's okay, we know who he is. And it was a really big deal in the sneaker world, the fact that this shoe was coming back. And Nike sold it on StockX first before any other retail channel. This is before Nike.com, before Foot Locker. And we created a sneaker box that was made out of wood from the Cavaliers championship court. So the Cavs cut up the court and we created a sneaker box and then included with the box an actual Cavs championship ring in the box. But this is the real ring that like if you worked in like marketing for the Cavs. And so we had this package and it was the shoes, the box, the ring. There were 46 of these, but it was a true IPO. And they sold for an average of $6,000 a piece. We gave half the money to charity, but this was on the homepage of the New York Times. And the reason it was on the homepage of the New York Times was not the ring or the box, but it was a really big deal about Nike going direct to the secondary market. Exactly. Okay, so that, yeah, that is radical disruption. And I guess, you know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's responding to consumers' demand for new ways of doing things. And that, um, is a neat segue into what I, I wanted to kind of dig into a bit next, which is really the, the theme of entrepreneurialism. And you as, you know, founder of a rapidly scaling business, uh, can you talk a bit about entrepreneurialism as a, as a concept? And I'm, and I'm interested not just in how you made that bold step into starting a disruptive business, you know, the kind of the jeopardy of that, but also thinking of the context we're in today where uh, economies in 
the US, the UK are changing so, so fast that there is going to be a real need for more people to have their own ideas, to launch their own businesses, to to, to bring new stuff to the to the table. Right? Our premise, or I guess my sort of, sort of personal philosophy for the longest time has been that ideas are worthless, right? It's really about uh, execution uh, and really about going to do out there. And so, you know, I've started to run three other um, startups before this. None of them had anything to do with sneakers. Right. Almost intentionally so. I mean, I've collected sneakers all my life. So I almost like intentionally separated like uh, business and, and pleasure. Um, but so it's, um, but I don't think that it's, it's um, an accident. The one that has been most successful is when I finally did. And you get to that because you have to love the process. It's all about like the process. And like, that's like, this is just a blast because you get to do this. Like StockX may very well be the the greatest chance that I have in my life to become wealthy, and and that's okay, and it's okay to say that. But like the fun part is now, mm. it's doing it and building it and, and stuff like that. And you know the best part about being involved in a hyper growth startup is that we have five hundred and thirty some people today. And it's like a day zero startup. I mean, it literally feels like when there were like five of us sitting outside of Dan's office and just, you know, the world was at oyster and there was an infinite number of things to do. But that's also why the, our only bottleneck today in every part of the business is people. Right. right? Well, we'll come yeah. on to people. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about it. Well, I've got, um, just still with the entrepreneurs, I've got an almost pathological fascination with another American entrepreneur, Elon Musk. That's a guy who literally lives Tesla, right? So he sleeps in the office. He's... He works, I don't know, 60 hour days or something somehow. Do you, can you empathize with that obsession, that mentality? Do you have to be a bit crazy to do what you're doing? Did they tell you that I sleep in the office? I figure they said that, yeah. I, um, I take like, a, I have a, a, a couch next to my desk that I take a nap at every day. Because what happens is slowly you stay, like if you love the process, you stay up five minutes later every night and then all of a sudden you're going to bed at 4.30 in the morning. Because like, so I'm married and I have two kids. Uh, my daughter's six and my son is three. So I try to get, when I am in town and, and that's the hard part is I travel a lot. But when I am in town, I try to get home and put them in bed and then I wake up and then it's like the second part of my day. So from like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., like that is the best time of day to work because there's no emails, no phone calls, wife and kids are asleep. You can actually like work. Yeah. And then then you get into the five minutes later, five minutes later, and all of a sudden like last night, and particularly because time zones is here, last night I went to bed at 4.30. And um, and so then I have a, ca- so I'll take a power nap during the day at the office. And like you just find ways to like steal sleep in between yeah. and doing it because like it's the, pro- like the process, it's the best. And like the opportunity to do this sort of stuff is amazing. So that is right. an obsession. Yeah. There is an obsession there. We joke, and my so I have two co-founders. One is Dan Gilbert, who's the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, and the other is a guy named Greg Schwartz, who's our COO and third co-founder. And Greg and I basically co-run the company. And, and like, you know, we joke, and this is not at all uh, about a negative, because uh, I love my wife and kids. But like, once it gets to the weekend, it's like crap. I can't wait to like get back to work on Monday, right? It's like it feels so far away. That I can get back to it just because there's so much to like to do. That kind of mentality, that mindset. I mean, that that's surely fundamental to the culture at, at StockX. And I, I wonder. I'm going to talk a little bit about culture. How how do you go about creating a sense of culture at a startup business? How do you foster it? Yeah, I mean, we have uh, 530 some people, and I would easily hire another thousand tomorrow right. if uh, if we could find the right people. Um, and there's a lot of roles that are still open that I'm 
desperate to have someone in there, but I'd still rather have no one than the wrong people. And, um, and that's, that's a really key part of it. Um, I think it was somewhere around employee number 50 or 60 that I stopped uh, interviewing every single person before they were hired, yeah. which was, um, I still kind of feel guilty about that. Um, and it was in engineering, right? You eventually turn it over to the CTO and you trust um, that, that they can, can carry the culture into an engineering culture because each team then is really different, right? Like, you know, an engineering culture is way different than say like the marketing team, and which is way different than we have an operations and authentication team that's essentially like a warehouse or the, it is a warehouse, there's four warehouses. So you, you have different cultures in it. And so what's important is that the leaders that you have in place get the the larger culture and can adopt it to their parts of it and still have that same you know feel. So it's a fluid it's a fluid thing. Yeah, yeah. but it, but it starts with like being vigilant in hiring of who you're going to hire and and particularly of those leaders which which we have been and Greg and I have been. It's also about um, getting rid of anyone that like you make mistakes and there's been uh, three pretty. Um, in two and a half years uh, at, at, at the like you know, mid to senior level leadership that were clear mistakes um, from a culture standpoint that the people were very smart and very talented, but just were not our culture. And like you could feel that divide. And it was one of those things that when we finally did uh, let those people go, it was addition by subtraction. And like, that's how you know, like inherently you're exactly right. Because like you can feel, it. even though all of a sudden you have one less very qualified, very capable yeah. person in a, in a business that desperately needs people. So you're, you're hinting at a kind of hierarchy of priorities, but what's most important, the, the qualifications, experience, or is it or is it genuinely the values? Who do you want in the trenches with you? And for us, like we use the example of like, you know, it's it's not about like nine and five. Like what happens when, when Kanye calls and says, we're going to release a Yeezy on StockX on, you know, tomorrow and everyone's at the office for the next 36 hours straight getting it over. Like who do you want there at three in the morning with you and look over and do that, right? And like if that's not like who you want there or who do you want to celebrate with like when you get through all that stuff, right? And go that and like that's as like as important as anything. Yeah. You've got to be in it. And I guess the big challenge will be as you scale and get bigger and bigger. You say you want to, you'd hire another thousand people if you could, but it gets harder to find people that, yeah, the right people yeah, at yeah. that kind of scale. And, and to, to your point, what, what you're looking at here, like I talk about internally all the time, like I want to hire founders. I want to hire like other startup founders. In fact, I've been starting to look and, and within my network and startup network at different places because I ended up, all I was looking for in between every startup was man i would love to go work for like a successful entrepreneur in a fa in a high growth successful startup and like work with like the the founding team and like that doesn't exist right. like everybody wants that but holy crap like i am like literally like trying to find that and give, i have this like unbelievably perfect job for for any like like amazing founder but it's hard to find those people at the right time because you have to find them in between startups so like I've been asking all my VC friends and our VC investors was like, do you have any great founders within your network that are like in between startups or stuff like that? And like, I just want more startup people. How would you spot? Because I assume as a you know someone who's obviously got an entrepreneurial uh, spirit themselves, you, you encourage that within the, the culture of StockX. How do you um, how do you spot a new Josh Luber among your own workforce? Um, I, I think the hard thing is, is to try to get those people to to understand it themselves. I think that, you know, there's some young people at the company that I think are really phenomenal. 
but um, everybody is so. And this isn't a bad thing, but like they're they're so focused on like sort of sm- like young smart people today are so focused on like smart long-term planning of their careers, of their future, of thinking about things like, well, if I take this job, then where can it lead to and, and all that, you know? And I'm just like, just, just like in the work, like in the best way possible, like just shut up and like bust your ass. And like the best, like the, that, the best things will happen there. Like if you're worried about like your title, if you're worried about all this stuff and I get why, like I, it's not like, I'm not like immune to it, but like there's nothing that, that comes up better than like the people that just like put their head down and like actually, you know, go in and do work. And you can tell the difference though. Uh, like once someone's there and working, right. It's the people that, you know, this, when you, when you need something done or, or you want to do something, it's people that like, if I ask this person, am I going to like feel like I'm like bothering them or guilty or they like somehow make, as opposed to the people that are like, yeah, I know I can count on that person, you know, and, and you can't, um, you can't always spot that right away in an interview. That's hard. But the best experience that I found is, is when you have someone that has been worked in a startup or a small business, do you want to do that? So you're not a, not a San Fran business. You're a Detroit business. And in, in, in this country, we associate Detroit with, you know, cars and that kind of Heavy industry. What uh, what has Detroit imprinted on StockX's DNA? So my business partner is Dan Gilbert. Um, you know the business he's most known for is as being the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. But his primary business, where where he made his money initially, was in Quicken Loans. And Quicken is the largest mortgage lender in the United States. And Dan grew up in Detroit. And what happened was about six seven years ago, Detroit was at the like its lowest point. It was in bankruptcy. The city was deserted. And Dan overnight moved in, like moved every one of his businesses in downtown Detroit, started buying up buildings for pennies on a dollar, and basically single-handedly rebuilt the city. And so for us, you know, we don't work on Detroit stuff per se, but that's Dan's mission in life, right? Like he's made his money and he still runs 130 companies and he's actually extraordinary. But his mission and the mission of the larger mission of, of the whole family of companies is around the rebuilding of the city of Detroit. And so for us to sit there and be a part of that, even, you know, just because we exist in Detroit and our headquarters is there, is, um, is extraordinary. Part of a, a bigger journey going on. Part of a bigger journey. And what's most important and what ties in with, with actually your, um, your interest here is Detroit is a startup city. And if you're a startup person, like, and now you get to live and be part of a startup city, it's extraordinary. And I don't know if there's another city in the world that is like that, where you have basically rebuilding of a major city from scratch. I'm reminded of another brilliant uh, entrepreneur, Jeff Bezos, who said um, failure isn't optional. It's not optional if you want to be inventive, right? You, you're going you're gonna to make mistakes. How do you deal with failure? You know, it's funny. I, I never um, have any like failure quotes that I use often, but that's a really good one. And then, yeah, I mean, failure is... is um, it's not only part of the process, it's like a huge part of the process. I, I don't know how many decisions I have to make a day, you know, a day or, or whatever, but like, man, if I can just get a couple of them right. I'm going to go through, uh, there's a few just kind of personal questions here. Um, your three top bits of business advice. So uh, I get asked this in, in some form a lot. And, uh, and it's funny because um, the, there's two that, are, that dominate, and it is, um, they sound like the most generic basic things, but they couldn't be more important. So one is just do something, right? Which is that so many people sit around and just, you know, like, oh, I wish I could do this, or I wish I could, like, just do something. Even if it's the most smallest, my, most minute thing, 
that you don't necessarily where know where it's going to happen or what it's going to do. Like you have to be moving, doing something to move forward. And if you're passionate about the process, like that's it should be an easy thing. Take a step. Yeah, like literally, you know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, you know, how did you ever build a, a billion dollar company? I was like, I, I didn't like I built whatever the next thing was like it's one foot in front yeah, of the other. Really right. And um, and then the other thing is, is talk to everybody. Talk to everybody and anybody about everything. Don't ever think someone's gonna like steal your idea. Don't ever show up with like an NDA to talk to someone. Like, first of all, if you have some great idea, I already said earlier, I think ideas are worthless and execution is the only thing that matters. <laughs> but like, if you have think you have some great idea and you're gonna go talk to someone and they're that talented and great that they could steal your idea and go do it, but they're not doing anything, they're just sitting around and have all this time in the world that they could go. No one's going to be able to be as passionate and dedicate. All it's about execution, so you should talk to everybody about everything because all you're going to do is get more feedback and iteration and people to help with and find people and introductions and all that. And a lot of people like don't do that. You feel like oh, I need to keep this private. Those are two things, and it's like simple, right? Like just do something and talk to everybody. Yeah, talk to everyone. I mean, that's kind of counterintuitive because I think when you have a great idea, your natural instinct is protect it, protect it. Everybody has. Other people are going to have some version of that idea, right? By the way, StockX, we didn't make this up. Like the stock market has been the most efficient form of commerce for hundreds of years. And all we did was point it from these commodities, stocks and bonds and oil and gas, to these, to sneakers and watches and handbags, right? Google didn't invent search. No. All right, I've got a last question for you. We, we, <laughs> this is a bit of a funny one. We've got, uh, we have this uh, thing here on, uh, on the good old BBC called Desert Island Discs, where guests get to say which songs they take with them. Uh, on a desert island and I want to I wanted to do something similar but update it a bit and because I'm a, a total sci-fi geek and I'm so excited about the idea of one day human beings on Mars or the moon I had this idea of okay I'm going to call it a moon base bag or something you've got one bag right it's uh, your Louis Vuitton bought on StockX obviously uh, what are you packing it you've got a one-way ticket you're going to go and live on the moon or on Mars you're not coming back what do you take with you? I mean like the amount of just work that I can do on my phone. Yeah. Like forget about the, just like whatever social and all that, but like I can run the entire business like on my phone and all this and it's like unbelievable to do that because how can I start like the next company or do that, whatever that tool is at that time, however that is. Like today it's a phone, but it's something to be able to, to do that. That's gonna be the, the pastime of like creating new civilization, you gotta create some sort of business on it. Yeah, it is an extension of ourselves. Um, really good to meet you. That's great, uh, great to talk to you. Thank you oh, very much. Thanks for having me. Just this is awesome. Yeah. Cheers.